Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. In Revelation 6.14, Revelation 6.14, which speaks about the heavens departing as a scroll it's rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? But here, in contrast to all this, here now on this mount of the sermon, the heavens aren't open as a scroll. They're closed. There's a blue sky. And here on this mount of the sermon, there's no mountain and island that's moved out of its place. That's gonna come in the future. But here on this mount of the sermon, there's no one hiding themselves from the face of the Lamb, Jesus, like they're in the future. I mean, this mount of the sermon, there's no one begging, there's no one crying out to mountains and rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of Jesus. And so on this mount of the sermon, he's not sitting in judgment. He's not sitting in a great judgment like he isn't gonna be in the future. Because on this mount of the sermon, this is not the wrath of the Lamb. This is just the gentle teaching of the Lamb. So what's going on here? What's going on here at the Mount of the Sermon? It's the same Jehovah Jesus that was at Mount Sinai. It's the same Jehovah Jesus in Revelation 6, where the people are begging, 6.14, where the people are begging the mountains and the rocks to follow him, to hide him his face. But on Mount Sinai, just a little was seen of the power of Jehovah Jesus, unveiled. In the future, Jehovah Jesus in Revelation 6.14 is fully unveiled. And that day is called the great day of his wrath. The great day of his wrath. Now, that day of his wrath, the only mouths that are heard are the mouths of those crying out to rocks and mountains to fall on them, kill them, hide them, bury them from the face of the lamb, from the great day of the wrath of the lamb. But this is all different now on the Mount of the Sermon. Same Jehovah Jesus as in Mount Sinai, as in Revelation 6.14, but now he's veiled. And why? Why? Why are we seeing this that's different? Because now, on the Mount of the Sermon, Jehovah Jesus is looking for men, but not for judgment. He's seeking men. He's came because he's come now, as he's there on the Mount of the Sermon, he's come now, he's come to seek and to save 
It says, he said in Luke 19.10, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We don't have the wrath of the Lamb here. We have the salvation of the Lamb here. Here we have Jehovah Jesus looking for those who will respond to his invitation, his Matthew eleven twenty eight invitation. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, where he invited with the come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. What we see here in this chapter is Jehovah Jesus that we saw right after Adam fell into sin. When we saw him in Genesis 3.9, Genesis 3.9 where it says, and the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? See, that's a different Jehovah. It's the same Jehovah Jesus, but it's a different side. And that's the side that we're seeing here on this Sermon on the Mount. This is the Lord Jesus, the Lord God Jesus, calling to the lost sons of Adam with the same call of where art thou? So in this Matthew chapter five, Jehovah Jesus is veiled. The wrath of the lamb is veiled. His title is of God as 100% completely veiled as he seeks those who are weary and heavy laden. And so that's the point of this chapter. It's God veiling himself in the person of Jesus, and that's the way he is seen today. Deity veiled in flesh and known simply as Jesus. This is only temporary. This is just a temporary veil. It's not gonna be in place. Really, I don't think it's gonna be in place for much longer. And the only ones who can be saved are the ones that fall at the feet of God who is veiled in Jesus and will say to Jesus the words that Thomas said in John 20, 28, John 20, 28, when Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Remember now that when Jesus is completely unveiled, finally unveiled, and he's seen as the lamb upon his throne, it's gonna be too late to be saved. The door will be closed. And no one can be saved after Jehovah Jesus is unveiled. And that's why the Bible says to anyone thinking about being saved, considering being saved, the Bible's message is very simple. Hurry up. Hurry up, because it says in 2 Corinthians 6.2, 2 Corinthians 6.2, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So basically what that verse is saying is that today is a day of hurry up. Hurry up, be saved, because the day of the unveiling of the Lord Jesus as the Lord God Almighty, the judge, it's coming. It's coming, and after that, no one can be saved. The door will be shut. So the day when Moses stood on Mount Sinai was the day of the giving of the law. That's what was at the Mount Sinai with all that thunder and so forth, terror. It was the giving of the law. The day of the coming Mount Sinai, so to speak, when the Lord Jesus sits on his throne will be the day when man is held accountable for the law he broke. And that day is called the day of the great wrath of the Lord. It's the day when there'll be only judgment, no salvation, no granting of salvation, no matter how sincere and how strong the pleas are, no. And until that day comes, we're living in the day of the other mountain, the day of the Mount of the Sermon, where the great prophet is calling out to man to be saved. 
So this is the great significance between the two mountains of the Mount Sinai and the Mount of the Sermon before us, the difference between the scene at the Mount Sinai and the scene at the Mount of the Sermon is basically John 1.17. John 1.17, which says, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Okay, so just as God was telling Moses that about the mouth of this coming prophet in Deuteronomy 18.18, Deuteronomy 18.18, when God said that I'll put my words in his mouth, And so that's what brings us to the significance in verse two when it says, he opened his mouth and taught them. So the mouth of God has a lot of significance. It's very important, the mouth of God. For man, it's very important. Why? Because the first time we see the mouth of God is when man received life in Genesis 2-7. Genesis 2-7, which says, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So man became a lived soul when God opened his mouth and put his mouth over the nostrils of man and then breathed into man God's breath, the breath of life. And from the mouth of God comes life. That's the message of Genesis 2, 7. It's from the mouth of God comes life. Just like life came to man from the creator God in Genesis 2, 7, so life comes from the mouth of the creator God in this Sermon on the Mount. In this Sermon on the Mount, this is the same Jehovah Jesus that's speaking from his mouth, and what's coming out of his mouth is what's termed in Philippians 2.16, Philippians 2.16, the word of life. It's the word of life. That's how scripture is described. It's described as the word of life that's breathed out, not breathed in, but breathed out from the mouth of God. So this brings us to the scripture, a very famous scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, all scripture is given by inspiration, inspire, inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. Most translations use that word, inspiration. It's wrong. It's a wrong word because inspiration refers to breathing in as opposed to breathing out. That is not the correct word to describe the Greek word nuo, nuo, which is the word that's used here in 2 Timothy 3.16. The Greek word nuo, where we get our word pneumatic, as in a tire is pneumatic, and if you poke a hole in the tire, it's not gonna suck in air, it's gonna blow air out. The Greek word nuo means a breath out or a breeze. It's the same, very similar to the word in Hebrew, ruach. Ruach means breath or wind. So 2 Timothy 3.16 uses this Greek word nuo, the nuo of God to describe the scripture. It's really saying all scripture is breathed out. And the only translations that really got it right is the New International Version, the NIV, which says all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and also the Amplified. So the scripture is the word of life that is breathed out out of God, and it takes us back to this scene, this dramatic scene in Genesis 2-7, Genesis 2-7, when God is breathing out into man this breath of life, and man becomes a living soul. So the implication for us, you say, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, it does have a lot to do, because the implication for us is that every time we open our Bible, we should see ourselves as the Adam with no life in himself, and we should see God as the one who has life in himself, And when we open the Bible, we should see God opening his mouth and breathing into us the breath of life. And that means that every time we open the Bible, we should imagine God opening his mouth 
to breathe into us the breath of life. And that's the significance here in verse two when it says, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And when God opens his mouth to teach us, he breathes into us life. Adam was born the first time by the breath of God. And the sons of Adam, we are born the second time by the God-breathed-out word of God, which is what it says in 1 Peter 1.23. 1 Peter 1.23 says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God. Being born again by the word of God, by the breath of God, by the breathed-out word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So as we look at verse two, where it says, he opened his mouth and taught them, we see God breathing out this life-giving word of life, the word of God. And we see ourselves receiving that life-giving word of God right from his mouth, which is exactly what God was expressing when he said in Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 8.3, man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Right from the mouth of God comes the word of life, and it comes to us, and which is why the term word of life is so wonderful. So when we read in Matthew 5.2 that he opened his mouth, and we see the Lord opening his mouth to give, we should see ourselves as reciprocating and opening our heart to receive that word. This is what makes the Sermon on the Mount so important. Now, we're coming now as we're going through these blessed be people, anyway. It says there in verse 10, there's one we come to now. So we're coming to another blessed are, and that's the verse 10. It says, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we come to this one, this is different from all the other ones. You know, the other ones, you're poor in spirit, you know, you're blessed, and you're meek, you're blessed, you're merciful, you're blessed, you're peacemaker, you're blessed. But now we got a great transition now. It's a great transition because now all of a sudden everything was going really good until now we come to this one where it's talking about a great conflict. You know, he's no longer describing the blessed are about themselves, but now he's talking about the blessed are and something happens to them. So, and it's interesting that it follows the peacemaker because it means that if you're gonna set your life to try to bring peace between man and God, if you're gonna set your life to try to reconcile rebels to God, you're gonna experience persecution and you're gonna experience resistance by this world. And that's what verse 10 is saying. It's standing as a warning to the peacemakers or the reconcilers. It's a warning that you know you should be ready for this great opposition this great persecution. So he goes through and he says, you know, blessed are persecuted, which we don't like to read about, but anyway, this is what it says. But then he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the kingdom of heaven. Now that's really confirming to us something very interesting because he's very much aware of the sufferings and the persecution that believers have and will, are and will go through. Now let me ask you to consider this. Think about this verse where he said in John 18, 36, John 18, 36, think about this, where Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not deliver to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from thence. In that verse, John 18, 36, what is the Lord saying about his kingdom? Very simple, what is it? It's not of this world, it's not of this world. And what's the proof? What's the proof from that verse that he gave that his kingdom is not of this world? Want to read it again? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews? But now is my kingdom not from hence. What's the proof that he gave 
that his kingdom is not of this world. Yeah, but he's saying the intolerable situation of him being delivered to the Jews would be stopped if this kingdom were of his world. Okay, so now, what would have happened if this world was of his kingdom? What would have happened? You already said it. His servants would fight. His servants would fight, and he would not be delivered to the Jews. Now, keep that in mind. And just imagine for a minute what the situation would be like if believers were being reviled in his kingdom, were having all manner of evil spoken against them falsely, and they were persecuted in his kingdom. If all this was happening in his kingdom in heaven, what would happen? His servants would fight. His servants would fight. They'd make it all stop. If this was the Lord's kingdom, then his servants wouldn't be mistreated like that. They would be fought for. They'd put an immediate end to that. But here on earth, not in heaven, here on earth, not his kingdom, when his servant, when his followers are mistreated, when we are mistreated for the Lord's sake, and it doesn't stop, what does that show us? This is not his kingdom. This is not a part of the Lord's kingdom. Just as he said, that's what he was saying in John 18, 36. In John 18, 36, he was saying, if this were my kingdom, my servants would fight. If this were his kingdom, it would all stop for us. Now, that's an encouragement to us. That's an encouragement to us that every time you and I suffer for the Lord's sake and every time the Lord's servants don't fight to stop that immediately, that's a reminder, this earth is not the Lord's kingdom. We're not in the Lord's kingdom, I should say. This is not the Lord's kingdom, and we're a foreigner here. But now in these verses, the Lord, these things are happening, and the Lord is not saying, look, when believers are being reviled and persecuted and have all manner of evil spoken against them, don't worry, my servants will immediately fight and stop it. He didn't say that. But what he did say, he says, you're very happy because rewards are waiting for you later in the kingdom. Here, we carry out the ministry of reconciliation with our testimony, and we suffer, but later come the rewards. Now he becomes very specific as to what type of persecution he's talking about, what can be expected in verse 11. He says, details, he said, blessed are you when men shall revile you, persecute, shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. And he says that our response to this is not to go into a state of depression, is not to go into a state of mourning and sadness that all this is happening to us. He says the response that we should have in verse 12, he's saying rejoice, be exceeding glad, why? Great is your reward in heaven. And then he goes on to say, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And he says that. He says that. He says in verse 12, he says, so persecuted they the prophets before you. He's saying, this suffering is not new. It's always been here in the past with those prophets that were before you, with those Old Testament prophets. And so he's saying to you, what a privilege you have. What a privilege you have to stand in the same level as the Old Testament prophets to make up what still is remaining of the suffering of the Lord. It's kind of like the Lord is saying, you know what? There's a certain measure of sufferings that he's gonna suffer, and that measure is included both by what he suffered in his body of flesh and what his body of believers suffer. They're all the sufferings of Christ. And this is what it says in Colossians 1.24. Colossians 1.24 says, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So this phrase, 
fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ, it causes us to see that there's just a certain amount of sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this amount is made up by both what he suffered directly and by what his followers suffer as well, which is what the Lord Jesus told Saul before he became Paul when he said to him in Acts 9.4, Acts 9.4, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He was persecuting Christians, but God said you're persecuting me. And so when the followers of the Lord Jesus, they suffer, they're right there with the Old Testament prophets, just as Stephen was, just before he was martyred. He said in, in Acts 7.51, Acts 7.51, he said to them, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? They have slain. They've slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers. So Stephen knew, Stephen knew before he was martyred that he was becoming a companion of these prophets that he spoke about. And when a person becomes a companion in the suffering of the prophets, he also becomes a companion in the receiving of the rewards of the prophets. And this is a wonderful thing. And that's why he said in Matthew 5.10, Matthew 5.10, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice in verse 12, Matthew 5, 12. Matthew 5, 12. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Great is your reward in heaven. Now, he's still on this subject of being in this hostile world. He's still speaking about the effects that believers are going to receive. But now he turns in verse 13 and he speaks about the effect that believers will have on this world when he says in verse 13, Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out, be trodden under the foot of men. So being persecuted is speaking about what happens to believers outwardly. It's the direction toward them. But now when he says you are the salt of the earth, he's speaking about what is in believers inwardly and the effect that they have going out. So in Mark 9.50, it's a good verse to have in parallel to this one. Mark 9.50 Mark 9.15, the Lord Jesus said something very interesting. Is in Mark 9.50. He said, salt is good. That's what he said. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost his saltness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. So this verse, Mark 9.50, it starts off, it says, salt is good. It starts off by saying, salt is good. How many of you agree that salt is good? <laughs> Do you like salt? <laughs> How many of you love to put salt on your food? Oh, yeah. My wife loved salt. Wherever we would go out, she always reached for the salt. And in case there should be this terrible day that there was no salt available on the table, she always carried a small container of salt with her. It was her emergency salt. Because <laughs> she loved salt. And the Lord said salt was good. Salt is a good thing to bring out the flavor of foods. It just raises the food from being bland to being like vibrant, yeah? My middle son, Joseph, he's the one who loves to cook, loves to eat. Yeah? Joseph, I love to watch my middle son, Joseph, cook because what he does to me is amazing. One thing he says, there's a certain ceremony that he goes through when he's preparing food to cook. He takes that big blue box of Morton kosher salt. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, and he holds it way up in the air 
and he shakes it till the salt falls from the box on the food like rain. I mean, it's a ceremony of salt with him. You have to stop and watch it because he loves to see those big crystals traveling through the air and falling down on the food. And he monitors the food till it's got this perfect coating of this white, glistening salt crystals on the food. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California, Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org, tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. 